Welcome to Situational Awareness Tactics Podcast. This podcast provides the crucial art of understanding current elements in an environment to increase your safety and survival. Here's your host, forensic psychologist and consultant, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. Well, today we have a great guest. He's former law enforcement over in Canada. So we're heading across the land in the U.S., heading north over to Canada. We're going to find out a little bit about law enforcement in Canada. He's also in the military, so we'll learn a little bit about that, too. We're going to cover a lot of great topics today. I can't wait because he was part of a special unit over there in the military. Um, He compares it to the FBI's HRT, uh, SWAT. So if you're familiar with those, kind of get the idea. So he's definitely been through some serious stuff. We're going to learn more about that. His name, Seb Lavoie. So S-E-B and then Lavoie is L-A-V-O-I-E. You can find him over at Instagram at S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R, S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R. So go check him out over on Instagram. Give him a follow. He's got some great stuff. He's also a black belt in jiu-jitsu. So we're going to find out where did he go? Did he go the Brazilian route, the 10th planet route? We'll find that out, too. So I can't wait to discover that. Before we get started, you know what to do. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Seb. Blah, blah. Welcome, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. funny because, uh, folks, we were just on together on a show that I mentioned <laughs> yesterday. Um, we had Jeff Bosley on yesterday, former Green Beret. And uh, so we're on the collective uh, you can catch them on YouTube, The Collective Live with um, Chance Burles. I think it mm-hmm. is Chance yep. Burles, Master Corporal. I always think it's Mick Burles, but it isn't. And then you can also find Sean Taylor. Uh, I think he was a Tier 1 operator. Uh, Chance was in the military, Master Corporal. So go catch that on YouTube, 11 a.m. Pacific time. I get nothing out of it. I'm not getting plugged for it. They're not paying me for it, but I do like to show a lot. So that's enough of that. Seb, uh, first things first, tell us a little bit, what is this group you're, you were part of? <clears throat> well, there, there's been several groups. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I guess, so yeah. So I, I will just kind of dive into just a brief history of, of of me and the service department. So 23 years of combined service between the military and law enforcement. I spent 20 years in the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. Those are the, um, the the people that wear the red surge, you know, that red uh, uniform that's world-renowned. <laughs> that's all we're known for, and horses. I found mm-hmm. out about you guys through, what was it, Jacques Rousseau, the Rousseau brothers and the WWF? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you just age yourself and me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, me. <laughs> yeah, so I spent 16, 16 of those years in, in the tactical space. I was on a program called the Air Marshal Program, which is the equivalent of the Federal Air Marshal Program, which is a covert tactical unit. I spent 12 years in a full-time emergency response team, the Lower Mainland District Emergency Response Team, which is a team that could be compared to, say, FBI HRT without necessarily the entire budget of a BIHRT, <laughs> but, but by way of mandate and, and operational readiness and capabilities is very similar. And uh, I was a team leader for seven. I was an element lead uh, for five and two as the overall team leader of a, of a group of 24 studs. I retired in 2021 as a 20-year service member and as the NCOIC Advisory and CEO to the commanding officer of British Columbia here in Canada. So that was my last posting before pulling the plug early, I might add. 
<laughs> was that because you wanted to? Yeah, absolutely. Time was up. Yep, I just wanted to do something else. I wanted to take the this game of life and extrapolate on it a bit. You know, it's interesting. I guess the other one popped up. I'm going to age myself again. Um, Dudley Do Right was all yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so not great. a very flattering picture. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting because I had you've all, I've only been exposed to the Royal Canadian Mountain Police that way. So I'm really excited to find out more about your training, how that operates. <clears throat> so let's start off with that. I don't know, again, how it operates in Canada. And you're the first, actually, the first international law enforcement officer I've ever had. I've spoken with international police officers. I think it's one of the more fascinating conversations I've ever had, but none of them have ever come onto the show because they couldn't. <laughs> um, so I've spoken to the Brits, the British police, talked to them about, hey, why, you know, how do you do without the gun? You know, this is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. How does this operate? I've asked Brazil police. That was a whole wild ride. <laughs> and Mexico, too, was another wild ride. Actually, that's not true. That's our only other international officers, Ed Calderon. Um, we had him on. <clears throat> but um, so let me ask you this. How does it work over there to become an RCMP? Is it something you progress to? Is it something you go to an academy for? What's happening? Yeah, so there's we have, just like anywhere in the country, so if you were to compare the Royal Canadian Mount Police with uh, the, FBI, the FBI, for example. So you have your federal agency and there's, you know, field officers all around the United States doing certain things. Well, in Canada, it's a little bit different than that. We have municipal, provincial and federal mandates at times, depending where you are in the country. But generally speaking, the organization is a federal organization. It's federally it's mostly federally federally funded, although obviously if you're in other areas, you will have other funding methods and mechanisms. But our head office in Ottawa, as yours would be in Washington, and you know we have the same sort of predicament going uh, with respect to that as you do in the states. So I'll leave it at that. But this, how this works is, if you decide, if you decided to go to a municipal force here, you would do all your process. You know, your you would do your obviously your background check, your interviews, your everything. You know, your long extended process, and then they would send you in a training. Uh, facility. And if you are in Ontario or Quebec, the only places where the RCMP is in the provincial police, you would go to whatever their schools are. But for the RCMP, everybody in the country, regardless of where they're posted, go to Regina, Saskatchewan. And it's, <laughs> it's in the prairies, it's in the boonies, and it is all you have to do there is train, eat, learn, and become a Mountie. That's all you do there. And um, so the training program is 22 weeks. So last time I checked, it was. I mean, I've, I've been out for, you know, a couple of years now. So things evolve. And, um, and six months. So it's six months of training. And you learn everything there is to learn about becoming a police officer. So that includes, you know, the, the law classes, the driving, the theoretical knowledge, the the combatives the 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 physical fitness like i mean everything the entire gambit is delivered at rcmp depot that's how we call them the depot in in regina so that's where i went for six months in 2001 or 2000 right. graduated in 2001 now i got a lot of questions <laughs> just for the folks out there just kind of curiosity to compare it um mm -hmm. start off with you said that you, do you first have a an interview or do you, you obviously you fill out an application, you submit the application. You guys have physical training and a written test? 
So uh, the process, and it might be it might be out of out of order here because sure. there are so many steps. But it generally starts with an information session. So we go to an information session. So we're we're getting the calls notes on what mm. the RCMP even does and and what what is to be expected if somebody embarks on the journey. Then you have a, a, a written exam. So you have to write a written exam. If you pass the written exam, then you're filling out a package, which is essentially your security package, right? You're going to fill absolutely everything about your life in there, like where you live for the last 20 years, where you worked, references, you know, things you did, things you didn't do, whatever the case may be, to build upon your security clearance eventually, right? So this is giving them all the information that they need to investigate your background, so to speak. But there's there's other activities that come after this. So you have you know some uh, an interview, uh, and you have uh, they call it a fit interview actually. And then you have your medical you know examinations, and then you can get into. Well, let me think for a second here. You got your medical examination. Yeah, and then so there used to be a polygraph. They've taken the polygraph out, so the polygraph mm -hmm. is out now. So your 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 essentially your your background information is 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 verified through other means, but you don't have the polygraph anymore. And you have a physical. There used to be a physical a physical component to this, and then eventually they changed it, and you you completed the physical component at depot, but they found that it created issues. Therefore, they brought it back so it's kind of gone back and forth a couple times oh, wow. same 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 thing with the uh, with the polygraph and so that's essentially it in a nutshell and once you're once you're done with the, this process that takes generally around you know 7 months to a year sometimes a bit longer depending who you are and what your background is and what the timing is on the application then you will get your your orders so to speak to go to depot to go to training so you'll be given a troop you'll be given a, a date and you'll show up there in your little bus and uh, wait for somebody to pick you up at the guardhouse. <laughs> when you're done. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because I like to compare the different departments. Even here in the U.S., they have different steps. Which one's first? Some like to do the physical first. And then mm -hmm. if you don't pass that, you're out. Some do the written. If you don't pass that, you're out. Mm -hmm. So really, I guess it depends. And even every physical test here is every department kind of varies. I think I've done four or five when I was younger. Yeah, you had mountain. Some had monkey bars. Some you had to jump over the six foot wall and all this other stuff. Basically, whatever you had to do as an officer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me ask you this: one of my biggest pet peeves here with the U.S. departments is, um, I think, and I've talked about this with other experts as well, that there's a lack of proper training in the world of restraining. Um, I'm not going to call it self defense necessarily for them, even though sometimes it can be that. But a lot of times it's restraining. And we've seen talking to jujitsu experts all over the place about this, including uh, Alan Shabar, a friend of ours. Um, it seems that it would behoove the police department here, at least in the U.S., so much if they were able to learn how to restrain somebody. And it's a very particular type of BJJ or whatever JJ, if you want to call it just jujitsu. Um, that's what I use the way I call it. But to be able to restrain somebody and hold them down would reduce a lot of the, the violence we've seen the shootings because they were able to control these people. So sometimes I watch this and I'm looking, it's like five of you and they're spinning around all over the place. They can't seem to hold the person down. All that to say, <laughs> do you find it same there? Do you find that the training could have been upped a little bit? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that 
training in combatives is what I refer to as for police officers in combatives is the ugly stepchild of, of the policing world. And I do believe that there is an old school mentality where, where, well, if we train our people to, to, to fight or be, or be capable of handling situation in the way they should, then they will go out and seek same situations. And we know, we know that the evidence is not there to support that at all. Quite to the contrary, Generally, the officers will have a instead of having a false so, uh, sense of confidence, they will have a confidence grounded in 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 reality, which is now a quiet confidence as opposed to trying to be the boisterous one and the one that's yelling the loudest and doing, taking the most dr drastic actions, you know. And so, what we have seen here is no different than what you're seeing in the states. There is a lack of taking training seriously. I. It's, it's very, very difficult to get officers individually to train on their own time, regardless how many videos you're putting out that demonstrate exactly it. I think there's a propensity to disconnect their reality from the reality that they're watching. You know, this isn't, this isn't going to be me or this isn't me because X, Y, and Z. And then the self-justifications are kicking in and everything. So until they get exposed themselves, they still are on the bandwagon that this is somebody else. And I think that mean a deflection potentially is 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 you know sanity saving for some of them because they don't want to know what they don't know on account of having to go back on the road instead of facing it head on and and looking at the problem and go listen I'm in the job of being able to control and to control people in order to control people i need to be able to control myself my body positions and then impose body positioning on other people right and so having the ability to to face the music and say i'm not where i need to be is something that we definitely need to work on but there are ways around that if organizations worldwide i don't care anywhere where policing is needed recognize the import the importance of having a proper combatives program then you could make it a part of the you know everyday duties depending and and you how this happens somebody smarter than me will have to will have to establish how this works in terms of numbers and how many hours and where and how and all this good stuff but it is until it's taken as a priority by departments we are going to continue to have issues i agree with you i agree with you 100 it's interesting because i know when i see these individuals do this well let me back that up when I entered, when I spoke with a police officer from Ireland, they do a two-year program. It was really interesting. So they can actually get, I think, an AA when they're done. <clears throat> so the training, and they are going on in the field. I think about halfway through it, but they go with an FTO and stuff like that. And I thought that's really interesting because I know it's going to take about six more months to a year more to be able to do this. But it's much better because it's just like you said, officers won't do it on their own. Mm -hmm. A lot of them won't. Some of them do, but it's going to cost them money or time. And, if you put it into the academy itself, much better. Much well, better. So the problem we had, and if you look at the RCMP, like the, the combatives program at Depo is very decent. It's very mm. decent. I you know, it's 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 on point, it's very decent. You you spend a lot of time doing it. The problem isn't during the six months of initial training. The problem is those are skills deg degradation. Those are items that will perish. You can't just be, okay, I'm trained six months ago or or for six months, five years ago, and I'm the same combative capable person that I was then because that's disingenuous and it's it's based in fallacy and it's unreal. Like you can't, you, you know? And so it's really important that there is a consistency of training. You know, you take somebody that trains every day 
in order for them to have the ability to exert force in the context of a police operation under stress, which is very different from most of the stress you'll ever experience and that interpersonal human aggression, as we know, you need to have, you know, the, you need to have the inoculation, if I can call it that, or the experience to deal with this, the situations that you're going to find yourselves into and do so regularly. You can't just make it up. Like you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall back to the level of training that you have. That's true. That's a good point. That makes it more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it does, but it's, point. yeah, it's just a matter of how do we make that happen? How do we make that happen? How do we keep it simple? How do we? And so there has to be a real, there has to be a real investment. It's not just, okay, how do we get rid of that problem? You know, if you see it like that. And also, speaking to your point just now, I find that it's easy for organization to self-disable on account of, oh, well, that seems like a like a giant endeavor, or it seems like something that will be really either time-consuming or, or labor-intensive or whatever the case may be, whatever story they tell themselves to not do it. But what is the cost of not doing it? The cost of not doing it far exceeds any of that. I would imagine so. The lawsuits. I know the number wise yeah. is very small. At least in the U.S., people, you know, the media makes it seem like it's a lot more happening, but it is a lot smaller than than it's being portrayed. You know, we as um, I'm sure you're probably aware of too, availability bias. Whatever we see a lot, we think happens a lot, mm-hmm. and it's not true. I mm-hmm. I talked about this with a friend of mine this morning. I said, "Where do you think most of the what city has the most violent crime in the U.S.?" And she immediately spouted out Chicago. I said, no. Nah. She goes, New York. I said, no. Nah. I said, St. Louis and Baltimore. And she's like, what? I said, yeah, St. Louis and Baltimore. And she's like, I never see them on the news. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You won't see them on the news, but we get conditioned to believe it's the other ones. And the same thing, I think, sometimes with, with things like the shootings, too. We just all of a sudden, we think it's happening all the time. I think that we had, I don't know how it is in Canada. We have about a thousand a year. I think po- uh, police officer um, fatality uh, shootings. I don't know how much it is over there. Well, I think you guys have something like four. I, I don't want to skew the number, but I want to say something along the lines of four million contacts a day in policing contacts. 50 so million you, a year. Yeah. So if you, I read, yeah. All right. Okay. So we'll say 15. Let's, let's, let's meet a million middle. a so, week. Yeah. So we go, we go, we go a million contacts a week and you have however many shootings. If you start extrapolating the numbers out of that, it is not an alarming situation. Not to say that individually the cases that are alarming shouldn't be raising the alarm. Obviously they should. But in terms of overall, I would say um, perception of law enforcement, for example, I, I think having the numbers really helps to dwindle out, you know, the outliers and the events that are definitely not the norm. Absolutely. It's true. I think it's like 0.001% of the time. It's a very small percentage of the time. And and we're not even talking about the incidents where shooting would have been justified, but didn't happen. That's true too. And people who those, have survived the medical doctors now. Yeah. Those, those are extremely, those are extremely rare, extremely difficult to quantify because we don't really keep track. We have a way to keep track of this stuff here in Canada. And so we're able to say in, in, in say, you know, 50% of, of calls, uh, related to a certain event, like domestic violence, or whatever the case may be, force was used 20% of time, 10% of the time, 5% of the time, 2% of the time, you know? So we have the ability to have those track, this tracking history that can be used 
not only to support our members, but also if somebody really goes outlier on the whole operation, we can actually hold them to account. Interesting. Now, what are some of the more common issues in your area that you worked in? What are some of the more common calls that you've dealt with? Are we talking in patrol or are we talking on uh, when I was on the team, for example? Or um, Let's do patrol first and then we'll go to the team. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, we we deal with the exact same thing that you guys are dealing with, just on a smaller scale. So we'll have the weapons calls, the gang calls, the drug calls, the drunk and alcohol-related, alcohol and drug-fueled calls. Most of them are. We have, obviously, the, the, you know, the traffic incidents. We have medical incidents. We have, I mean, the list goes on and on. But it's very similar in, in scope as what the U.S. has, just there's two sort of major factor that are quite different. Like we do have a lot of firearms here in the country proportionately to how many people we have living here. But it seems as though for reasons that far exceed my <laughs> my brain, my ability to process, the States has a much more elevated propensity to use those weapons against law enforcement. Whereas we do, and, and, and I, I want to qualify this because we actually lost 10 or 11 this year in a year uh, we you know shot uh, and and stabbed and 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 killed like murdered and so it's not like we're we're not we're not necessarily super far off if you compare the numbers like how many leos there are so i'll give you an example new york city i believe has 36000 cops or something like that the yeah. the rcmp has 26000 so that's 10000 less our national police force has 10000 less cops than new york city right so if you start comparing the numbers but we do we do have very very similar calls i know here one of the most common they like the most common but they tell me the two most dangerous calls for the officers here are usually domestic violence and traffic stops that the same there yep exactly the same yeah i mean i mean yeah domestic violence i mean it's pretty self-explanatory right like it's those are incredibly emotion emotionally driven situations and so you're interjecting essentially in somebody's in somebody's privacy and at their worst time and and under very negative lights and oftentimes their temper is in the roof and emotions are flying high and so very very dangerous calls we generally have a rule where we will not attend alone Whereas a lot of other calls, we'd be attending alone and kind of problem solving things. And if an officer is needed, we'll call back. But in the case of domestic violence, we have it by policy that we must attend with numerous officers. Obviously, we have a lot of members that work in very, very small detachments where they might be in a rural area and some of this stuff happens. They have to do what they have to do to make it happen and do so as safely as they can. But yeah, very volatile and traffic stops are exactly, exactly the same. You never know who you pull over. Never know. It's a lack of information that makes it so dangerous. That's a great point. Yeah. Sometimes you can have people like Ted Bundy, folks. You might remember him when he got <laughs> he just got pulled over, I think, for a headlight or something. I forget what the heck his deal was. And the reason I asked is I know folks, you're probably thinking, well, that makes perfect sense. I thought it was too. But one thing I've learned is that intuition isn't always very intuitive. Because um, when I've asked individuals from Mexico, different types of police down there, they have different types of problems. Some problems, they don't even go to those calls because it's just not worth it to them. <clears throat> Ireland, same thing. When I talked to my buddy who's a police officer, I think it was in West Sussex. I said, what do you normally deal with? Uh, sheep leaving. <laughs> I said, sheep leaving what? <laughs> yeah, they kind of get out. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh -huh. That was a very different. And I said, what the guy in Brazil? I said, what do you guys deal with? 
Well, we can't really go home necessarily a lot of times because they can follow us and say, who's they? So the gangs, and then, you know, if they're pissed off at us, they're going to execute us. And it's like, well, this is a bizarre turn of events. So we keep talking. And so it's very different in a lot of places. So that's why I kind of asked you, just in case you folks were wondering, because um, I know Italy's got the same thing too. Italy's got very different um, issues to deal with. They have to be careful and find out this is mafia related or not. That could be problematic for them uh so yeah it's an interesting world out there it's an interesting world yeah, korea yeah. was even interesting too korea has another very different atmosphere and so does um japan so back to you um <laughs> what about in in the uh i think you called it lmert uh lower mainland ert lower yeah, mainland team yeah so what kind of ERT. calls do you normally go there mm-hmm. everything from armed and barricaded to hostage taken to oh wow uh, gang violence and gang takedowns and murder investigations and drug investigations. And we get tied into a lot of projects. And, and just to qualify this, I, I actually left the team four years ago now. But the team the team is better and, and actually busier than they were. I think they were running up to 300 calls this year. I mean, that's a short year between January and June. And so uh, just a very, very high operational tempo here a bunch of good people and we have other rcmp teams across the country as well which are equally as qualified and competent but uh very busy landscape here around the lower mainland what part were you what area or you west coast vancouver vancouver yeah we were just talking about vancouver on the collective were you (laughs) i forgot i forgot already i forget my name I (laughs) i don't know if that was travis or not um because you guys, you said gangs, and that's one of the more interesting conversations I've had, too, with a lot of individuals. We have gang experts here, a lot of buddies. Because um, you guys actually, from what I've heard before, you guys actually have a problem with Hell's Angels? A little yeah. bit of an issue with them and Red Scorpions yeah. or something like that? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I would I would say they're underlying, you know, the, the Hell's Angels have been an underlying presence in the criminal underworld for decades, right? Yeah. I, th- I think that... Uh, depending where you are in the country, you, you're exposed to different things. Like I was born and raised in Quebec on the East coast, which is, mm. uh, is north of New York. And, um, back then in the nineties, it was the biker war between the hell's angels and the rock machines. And they were using IEDs and vehicle born IEDs and all this good stuff. It was like a crazy war zone. They used to dump bodies, every street corner, like by the oh. five or six a day or, you know, on both sides. And so I was, I was born and raised in that climate. And then I came over here on the West coast where the bikers is the biker chapters is one of the richest chapters in the world. And they drive Lamborghinis and wear a suit and whatever. And, and, and the, you know, the people under them are, are, are the ones that are generally getting busted for whatever it is that happens. And it operates like a corporation a lot of times. People don't understand that. Yeah. So I know the buddies of mine work in the drug cartel area. They have exactly like you said, they have the lower tier, the mid tier, the middle management, they have the accountants, believe it or not, the lawyers. Oh, yeah. Realtors. Yeah, sense. What is it? Realtors. Realtors. Yeah. <laughs> that's true too. I remember, I think I was talking to, I think it's Jay Dobbins. You ever heard of Jay Dobbins? He went undercover with the Hells Angels. Yes. Yes. I yeah. Have. We were talking about that. And I think he mentioned that there were actually former police that were doing their background checks to get into the Hells Angels. I said, that's incredible. It's, it's mm-hmm. insane. Yep. Now, you guys have a bunch of different gangs out there. I think they estimate yep. several hundred of them. Um, mm-hmm. Which are the more prolific ones right now? Do you know? I don't know. I Specifically, mm-hmm. and the reason why I don't know is because this is a very dynamic 
landscape mm. when it comes to gangs here and there's really no allegiance there's no real allegiances mm. it's 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 temporary allegiances i like to call them you know so the red scorpions were really strong for some times um what else did we have here mm. uh, was it the united something the, the united yeah the so the un gang with with mm. clay Rausch at the head was 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 another one of the big problematics especially a decade ago those two were the primary two but there has been a shifting in the landscape with clay being arrested in mexico or something and then these other guys getting some of the so the bacon brothers which were associated with uh, the other gangs getting getting gunned down in in the interior here of of of, uh, of british columbia in Kelowna, i believe and so the landscape has shifted quite substantially but what's interesting is as I said, there's there's really no, doesn't seem to be real allegiances, and and if you see people working together, is generally temporary. At some point, they're going to feud, and and they're going to turn on each other, and everybody's kind of turning on each other, and there's no real gang loyalty, like like the mafia, for example, right? Like yeah. even though at times they they will turn on each other, and and obviously discard of problems as what or what they perceive to be problems, here is a little bit different. There is really no rhyme or reason for allegiances, turning your vest, whatever, whatever. It's it's, uh, but it's a big melting pot. But suffice to say that we have a ton of gangs here, and there's a lot of weapons involved, illegal weapons involved. And I qualify that because there's a lot of Canadians that are gun owners, and their guns never see a gang or a gang shooting. But the the illegal the illegal firearms is the problem that we have here in the gangs, despite. The best attempt of our government to say that somehow legal guns are to blame yeah well mm-hmm. if we're getting to that mess <laughs> yeah and, exactly but um and before i get to ask you this uh folks mm-hmm. again we're talking to seb lavois you can find him on instagram and slav because we're going to be ready to talk about situational awareness in a few minutes folks but slav ccmdr slav ccmdr go find him over on instagram I, the reason I'm bringing it out, this isn't to derogate Canada, just in case you got some Canadians out there going, what are you talking about? this? Because <laughs> we don't hear about it. <laughs> we don't hear about it in the States. Uh, we have a cutesy way of never saying there are gang problems. We usually say there's a group of teens with guns. I don't know about you. We don't usually have a group of teens randomly <laughs> going around shooting at each other for no allegiance to anybody. I just Usually they're gang-related in some capacity. But it cracks me up when you see it going, okay, you had a group of adolescents shoot another group of adolescents at a funeral. Well, we know gangs do that a lot because they know yeah. the other gang's there. <laughs> but no, it's just these random hordes of adolescents. But I get it. The politicians don't want it because nobody wants to visit the city. So I understand it. But I think for situational awareness aspects, people have to kind of understand that. When you go to mm-hmm. a different city, you don't know. Um, and I'll get back to that for one second. Uh, I just wanted to ask you this really quick because I also heard something that was different. You guys have mafias issues there too. Yeah, of that course. was kind of surprising. Yeah, yeah. We Again, have it, we never Italian and Russian mafia. We have Asian mafias. We have yakuza's. We have oh yakuza too. MS thirteen, just like you guys do. We have. Oh, yeah, there are, the cartels are here. I mean, we have we have a you know a, a very similar landscape, just volume wise, a lot less. A lot less. Do you think mm-hmm. it's proportional, though, or no? Do you think it's I believe, still less? I believe. I believe 
it it has to be close. If it's if it's not so, directly proportional, I think it it has to be close. And and again, I could be I could be off, but uh, I don't think I am. I believe I believe it's close if you look at the numbers and crunch them down, for sure. Yeah, folks, pay attention to that just in case you you haven't seen that before, because a lot of people will try to. Comp- I hate international comparisons because you really can't do it. I like to learn about the cultural differences, but because uh, people sometimes say, oh, the U.S. has more more of this than anybody. Yeah, it's because we have 300 million people. Mm-hmm. And also the reasons why you incarcerate people could be very different. There's different laws in different countries. So some people don't incarcerate for certain things. Some people just wipe you out. <laughs> countries don't even worry about incarcerating you. They just eliminate your existence on the earth. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say I was gonna say the the one area that we know you guys have us beat hands down is school shootings or or shootings like oh, active man. shooters, active shooters. You guys are impossible to beat, and I you know it's a sad winning. Yeah, it is. Sad, it is. But and and I would love to one day dive so much deeper into this and what the underlying issues are, and it's so complex. But uh, but yeah, that's the one thing that so far has been very different. Yeah, that would be a good one for the collective because I know mm-hmm. when you talk about shooters in the U.S., you made a good point because it, it is complex because you have school shooters who have different motives. Mm-hmm. Then you have these random shooters that go into particular areas again and shoot up a mall for whatever reason. Um, each one has a different motive. The ones for school are obviously some kind of retribution for however they were treated. And then the ones that work, same thing. It's usually a retrib- retribution kind of issue again. Yeah, but we do have a huge problem. It's escalating. And one of the pet peeves of mine is that the news needs to stop showing it. Mm-hmm. It needs to stop showing mm-hmm. the perpetrators because the other perpetrators are legit, um, legitimately reading the manifestos of the other shooters. And it obviously it entices them. And I don't know. I, mean, I don't, don't want to get down in the weeds of this, but a lot of times we know that a lot of these shooters are marginalized, don't feel society notices them, now they see the shooter at Highland Park. Everybody knows him, never forget him. And they say, wow, I can have a legacy here. And we've talked about legacy on the collective as well. Mm-hmm. And that to them is, is a very powerful thing when you have nobody around you. Sure. Well, even if you think you have nobody around you. Yeah, the appeal of the gain can be can be something for somebody that's perceived to have nothing. But it's a true, that is the epitome of, of the victim mentality, right? You can't, you can't. You can't make that up. That is <laughs> epitomizes victim mentality, and yeah, it's it's a it's a very complex situation. But definitely, we need to be problem solving this on short order as much as we can, and try to mitigate the risk one way or another. Oh yeah, definitely. And I like the way you put that because it is about mitigation. Mm-hmm. Some people I think are a little too Pollyannish, and they kind of go with we have to. Well, it doesn't stop them all. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, crime is never going away. No, it's been around for what, whatever religion you believe in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're a Christian and you know Cain and Abel, it doesn't really matter. It's been around for thousands of years. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Sev. We're going to head switch gears now, head towards mm-hmm. situational awareness because I need to do combatives training. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's mm-hmm. all this about. Well, um, it, it all depends. I mean, so I was involved in combatives my entire service. I was involved in combatives and in training combatives uh, and teaching combatives in my military service even as early as then. And I was I was teaching in the in policing and then eventually like regular members, so patrol officers, and then eventually to ERT level where I was I designed our combatives, our initial combative program for the lower mainland team. So I was responsible to 
sort of establish the parameters and then make sure that we and the instructors that we had were following up on whatever it is that the curriculum called for. And it was a very simple model. It, there was nothing too crazy about it, but certainly an approach, a multi-pronged approach, or it wasn't one of those things like, oh, okay, so this is BJJ and this is, you know, boxing or whatever. It was how it it started with, first of all, the 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 tools that we had and the and the and the tactical principles that we had. So we started with that, you know, and then and then we moved into if if we if we still need to go hands-on, how do we do this? What is, you know, what is the initial contact like? What is the what is the takedown mechanisms like? What if I'm being I'm under fire because I'm receiving, you know, incoming fire from not from a gun, but from punches and knees and elbows and whatever. And then positional control. How do we how do we establish positional control? How do we affect an arrest properly? How do we so all of those things? So it was it was quite a broad you know uh, skill set, but it was but the skills themselves were kept at a manageable difficulty level so that we may maintain them is easier, not necessarily you know because because they still they still perish. We understand that, but you know it, it was trying to trying to bridge that gap. I have a very um, MMA-based approach to combatives, aside from the weapon retention, the weapon retention, and the other the additional tools that we have that would be evidently illegal in MMA. But in terms of having the ability to take a fight where I want it to go or go away from the areas that I don't want to be in, I believe that the the MMA world has done a fantastic job of establishing what works and what doesn't, and that we need to capitalize on that, keeping in mind that there are several things that need to be changed or adapted on account of the extra risk that we incur on the street. So you're working with civilians now as well? Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do. Um, I do, you know, sometimes women-only self-defense, but I will do situation awareness primarily with my women i don't buy into the whole let's teach them physical skills that they will never use again and it'll be an hour of the time two hours of the time it will give them a valuable idea that something's out there but in the, in two three days from now they will not be able to replicate that but what i can teach them is the the whole the whole situational awareness piece how how to be aware how to be aware how to pay attention how to act how to harden the target as as i like to call it because we know that people that target certain individuals are generally will do a target tracking and then they will target identify people that have one of two things the people that can fight back or the people that can get them caught and both of those things they will try to stay away from and so when when it comes time to target selection if a person is being followed for a week a month a year and that person has established a routine of complacency of not paying attention of being in their phone of parking you know mm. as a in, in in where the light or the camera isn't or doing making whatever decisions you know coming out of their house without scanning through the people or whatever the case may be then we know that those people are going to be likely victims of whatever it is that the person the nefarious plan that the person has for them and so for me the majority of my self-defense work for women especially has to do with building situational awareness and give them tricks and trades that they can use to 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 essentially control the perception of their security of their capabilities in regards to security 
And so, and then also if there is organizations or special teams or whatever that want to do combatives training, I will do combatives training. I do it lots for law enforcement, but this isn't something, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about, but this, it, it isn't something that I want to do forever. It's just something that I've done my entire career and I love martial arts, but also you know, I'm kind of at a juncture now where I'm looking ahead, wanting to kind of branch out and do other things with my life, hence the reason why I left oh. policing. <laughs> and so I, I still own a martial arts studio, uh, oh, which is do? called, yeah, which is called Ascension here in, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. And uh, at Ascension, you know, I, I I will continue to teach the Leos and 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 our people, mostly self defense oriented jujitsu. Although I do sports jujitsu as well for the sake of 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 having the body awareness and and being capable of doing certain things. But I, yeah, it's 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 something that I do out of love and out of love for the collective. But I definitely not something I would do full time if I was offered it. Interesting. Yeah. Really kind of, you know, you own your own studio. Mm-hmm. And you make some great points because um, criminals are always doing a cost benefit analysis of who they target, unless they're really on some kind of drug or something. They really don't yeah. care at that point. But, yeah, something like that. But if they aren't, they're usually always doing the cost benefit analysis. They're watching. I think the famous Gates study you probably heard of as well. Mm-hmm. So they're watching how you walk and what you're doing. Um, that's great advice. Do you also agree that being situationally aware can sometimes doesn't replace it but if you're going to get anything that's be the first thing to get besides martial arts because martial arts is already after the fact mm-hmm. uh, is that right for you oh yeah you're 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 reactive and any and, and action is always is always faster than reaction and so for you to be reactive if if you have missed the threat cues and if you have missed the red flags and if you have missed you know the plan that's that's being enacted in front of you on account of having both your eyes closed or being in your electronics or just simply not paying attention because you don't think that that can be you, uh, you got, you got some coming and, uh, and it's unfortunate, but it's almost impossible to go through life without experiencing some sort of directed violence. It, it will happen. It's just a matter of time. And so taking that fact and it, and it's, I call it the airplane uh, syndrome. You know, when you get on the airplane and the flight attendants start doing a safety briefing and they say, take the, the map, the map the, or the, the card from the seat in front of you and nobody does, all of a sudden everybody's not paying attention because if they pay attention to whatever it is that she is saying, it's acknowledging that there is a chance that plane might crash and that terrifies humans. I'm the other way around. I actually want to know what I need to do if this goes wrong because mm-hmm. th- things do go wrong. And when they do go wrong, what are, what are my courses of actions? What are my contingencies? And the, and, the, and the stuff that you prepare for is way better than the stuff that you don't prepare for. And so having, and then and, and that's in line with what we were talking about earlier in the collective about self-awareness and self-regulation. If I know that something is making me uncomfortable, i.e. potentially being victim of violence, why is it making me uncomfortable? Well, for X, Y, and Z, I can't take care of myself. I can't, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't understand violence. I don't. And so you got two choices now. You put your head in the sand or you seek to get better. That's great advice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I know when I talk to individuals about situational awareness, like you mentioned, you have to keep your eyes open. And what scares me now is I'm seeing some things change with the criminals. And I've talked to officers who were in law enforcement 50 years ago, 
And they tell me the same thing. The criminals aren't the same anymore than they were in the 80s, 70s compared to now. They're much more aggressive. And I look at things sometimes, and this isn't to stop taking situational awareness, folks. This isn't a knock against it at all. But it's, it's just concerning to me. And I'm curious to see what Seb thinks. But um, if you watch a lot of the videos of some of the crimes here in the U.S., some of these things are starting to happen in certain areas like San Francisco, for instance, uh, Oakland. They're happening in the middle of the day. You could be walking in the street. Be I see these guys are not on their phone. People are, are paying attention, and yet it doesn't matter because you have a car that pulls up with three or four guys and a gun. You're done. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's nothing you're going to do there. You're not flash. I don't think mm-hmm. so. There's nothing you can do there. You're kind of stuck, and that's kind of concerning to me because you know before, yes, you can. Oh, we got two guys coming down. I want to I want to go across the street or I'm going to go into this building to be safe. And in some of these places, it doesn't even matter if you do that. They'll go into the place anyway. <laughs> it's bizarre to me. Yeah. So you, there's two things here, compounding issues. I think, A, if we were to look at it from a statistical standpoint, I'm pretty sure that those are still outliers, right? So you're going to deal with your situational awareness is going to risk mitigate most of the things that you'll encounter. And the, the outliers will happen if they need to. <laughs> if somebody really wants you ambushed, you are going to get ambushed. That's a fact. And I don't care if you're a special operation or regular people. That's what happens, right? Unless you have information to, that leads you to detect the ambush early. Or countermeasures. And um, and then second, I think a, a big part of the problem that you have in the States, and this is totally at the, at the uh, hypothesis level, I think that the vast majority of the problems that you have in the States right now is the, embold- the emboldment of criminals in the face of the public support that they are getting to hate on law enforcement. And so if you are, if, if, if the propensity is to go towards a defund the police movement and we have an agenda and 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 the the people are on board with with said agenda that means that everything that is in that is less frowned upon than it used to be and that includes criminal activities i mean we're you know we're looking the other way like nobody's business right now because people want they have that cognitive bias and they do want to corroborate their side of the story as if there was actually a divide in a side of the story but we made it so but i just i just believe that in the states, especially, criminals are now almost folklore heroes in some areas in doing certain things, you know, on account of of you're against law enforcement, basically. So we're fighting a common enemy, sort of a fighting the enemies of my enemies or or the the enemies of my enemies or my friends or something, you know, like almost almost to a subconscious level, obviously. But there is a culture change, and I believe that the culture change is responsible, probably responsible for the issues that you have it's with respect to that. Yeah. And the folks, by the way, this isn't nothing new in the sense of we see this happening every 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. It flips around. If you study criminology, you'll see it goes into more of a punitive measure for 20 years, three strikes you're out, then it comes back to a more rehabilitative, restorative type of measure, then it comes back again to punitive. <laughs> And it kind of bounces back and forth every 20, 30 years when somebody, well, let's try it this way now. And I think a lot of times it's because they want to seem like you're going to get zero mm-hmm. crime. It's just not going to happen. My biggest and my biggest issue when it comes to the way things are cyclical, as you mentioned, is this. We, as humans, do things black and white. There isn't so we either do something a complete, complete this way, completely this way, or we're going on the 
completely opposite end of the spectrum and we're doing something completely different. So it doesn't leave room for what it is that we actually changed that did anything. Like how do we quantify what we change and if it has a positive or a negative impact on what it is that we are doing? But what we need to start seeing is incremental change. And I believe that finding the right balance between being, you know, you, you steal a chocolate bar in your third strike and you're going to jail for the rest of your life versus, you know, you're, you're free on the, you, you can be a multiple time rapist and you're free on the road. Like there is a middle there. There is a middle ground and we're not liking to be on middle grounds as humans. It's almost like I must commit all my eggs in the same basket. And if it doesn't work, I will go the complete opposite direction. And it, nothing gets fixed like that. We, most of the time, most of the time, the answers that we're looking for are on the middle ground. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because in, in the world of mental health, there's a there's a theory called cognitive behavioral theory, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah. And one of their maladaptive thought patterns that people can have is dichotomous thinking. It's either that or this. You're either for me or against me. And it's funny because the media creates that. A lot of times they'll create it's this or that. Or feeds <laughs> this, into it. Or feeds into it and mm -hmm. um it's tough for people because they see themselves being placed on one side or another if you don't if you support this person you're this type of person all of a sudden all these characteristics are slapped on yes it's, it's kind of a weird situation but now I'm kind of double we're delving too far but i am interested to see how san francisco turns out <laughs> i'm watching them and it's um they are where they're at now so there's nothing much you can do so all you can do now is just watch the experiment and see how it happens because when they've lost, what is it, 50% of the stores in Westfield Mall, crime is skyrocketing. It's really interesting to see what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Right now, they're they're uh, falling back on the old model of increased police, increased yeah. police presence, <laughs> and put them away. So back to the, um, what do they call that, incapacitation theory. If you put them away, they can't commit crimes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really interesting. We'll find out how that turns out for them. Yeah, we have a very similar situation here in Vancouver mm -hmm. right now where there's actually a documentary out that's recently been um, censored, so to speak, but uh, it's called Vancouver is Dying, and it was very well done. It's academically based, and it has a lot of operational pe people, and I, I mean people in the, that, that, are, that work with, you know, drug, drug addicted persons and, 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 and the whole landscape, and they saw the change in the, at the political level that led to some of the issues that we're having, say, in Vancouver right now. But we're looking at a rate of random assault that's up 30%. Oh, wow. And that has gone from a specific area, so a target, a target location, to everywhere. So now it's it's actually proliferated across the across the, the city, but also the, the rates of random assaults are astonishing, and the severity of the assaults are substantial so now we have these sort of homeless people addicted to drugs walking around stabbing people randomly so they walk by in close proximity boom boom a couple of stabs here and there and continue on with their merry day so we are seeing a byproduct of some of the decisions that were made obviously without getting into it at sort of the political level and and uh that led down the rabbit hole that we're in right now so now it's problem solving this there's new administration you know in the in the mayor's office and they're they're looking at what they're going to do but i assume that we're going to see a very similar response because at the end of the day if we're trying to mitigate harm what is the fastest way to do that well the fastest way to do that is to get them arrested and have more people to do to do so and to do it now but it doesn't solve the long-term problem 
that is where the issue comes. It's like, okay, well, that's a band-aid and I get it because we need to ensure physical safety and we need to ensure that people are actually capable of going out and have a regular life without fearing for their lives everywhere they go. But also, what does this look like 10 years, 20 years from now? Are we relying on this solely or is there a joint approach here uh, to to problem solving the you know the issues, the violence issues in Vancouver? That's a great point. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it is like a little Band-Aid. And this goes back to what we were talking about, too, is uh, the importance of understanding the why of these individuals behaving the way they are to try to solve it. Again, it's not to justify their behavior, but it's to understand and see, can we nip this at the bud? Mm -hmm. We can reduce it from 100 perpetrators down to 30 or 25 perpetrators, much more manageable. Because I hate it when they try to do experiments, especially when it comes to law enforcement experiments, because you can jeopardize the safety, people die. These yes. aren't, this isn't like I'm testing out a little bit of extra salt on my burger and see how it turns out. I mean, this is people's lives, children, parents, grandparents. And I look at it going, wow, this is not the place to do that and sometimes. And I get it. They're well-intended for a lot of these individuals. I get that. And so it's not a knock on them, but I don't know. It's a, it's a tough situation. Yeah. Grand social experiments cannot be done if the cost is lives. Like you have to, mm -hmm. it has to be, it has to, that cost has to be mitigated. So you have to have ways to do that. But, uh, but also you have to have an impartial eye. And I think that, you know, speaking of cognitive bias, we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's exactly what's happening now. You have camps and those camps are looking at the problem through the same lens so that they may corroborate their version of event. So not only does it increase decisiveness, but it, uh, uh, divisiveness rather, but also it doesn't solve the problem. So we need something different. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I don't know too many companies that would do something, continue to do something if it wasn't getting results. And that's for financial loss. Yeah, that's for financial loss. Yeah. Imagine if people <laughs> die, you know? Yeah, because I know I talked to a sociologist last year. I did an interview and we talked about drug addiction. And he was the one who presented that idea. So I don't want to steal it like I had it. But he said, you know, I don't know any company that would continue to run if your metrics weren't meeting we're being met if you had certain mm -hmm. goals and i don't know doc you tell me we've been our addiction has gone up for 20 years and i was kind of looking at him thinking you know what he's right because we've been doing this for 20 years are we doing something wrong because it doesn't seem like we're doing anything right we're mm -hmm. supposed to be going down we've spent billions of dollars trying to reduce addiction and it's going up not down mm -hmm. and i thought he's got a point it's interesting are more people doing drugs why are people getting better or not that was interesting yeah, the version, you know, that's goes back to the old definition of in, of insanity, right? Like trying, doing the same thing all over again and expecting a different outcome. And this is something that's deeply rooted in policing. I like to say that there's two things that policing doesn't like, change and the way things are. <laughs> <laughs> that's about right. <laughs> Hope you caught that. I, I barely caught it. All right. Again, we're talking to Seb Lavoie. You can find him on Instagram. I'm S L A V C C M D R S L A V C C M D R. We ended up down to our last few minutes, Seb. And always a fascinating conversation with you, my friend. Always fun. Absolutely. Jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, there's different types of jiu-jitsu for different mm -hmm. purposes. This has become much more prevalent in today's world than it, than it was 20 years ago. Because now you can do ADCC if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. You can go into... Uh, EBI, if you're a 10th planet kind of person, um, what's the other one? IBJJ, IBJJF, I think it is. And mm -hmm. 
Well, you can also learn it for street self-defense, uh, all kinds of versions. First things first, what did you take? Would you Brazilian or did you go the 10th planet route? What was your thing? Uh, no, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. I mean, not that the 10th planet basis is, is is still based out of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, considering that Eddie Bravo was already mm-hmm. a Brazilian jiu-jitsu <laughs> guy. <laughs> and so I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I mean, he's 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 taken a paintbrush and created a different a different painting as a result, but he used from the same paint, right? And so for me, it's mm. it's it's all intertwined. And I I really don't like the whole sort of divisiveness, right? That we we and people love groups and and feeling that they belong to something. So they it's <laughs> that's why we tend to create clicks, right? But also it doesn't always serve a great purpose. So for me, I've always been very open to even when it wasn't very popular to cross train with everybody. And mm. and I I did that over the course of my 17 years in the jiu-jitsu world i um so yeah yeah for a lot for a long time it was but if you look Uh at it now i mean everybody cross trains and it's and the gyms that are not allowing it are very far few in between and they're generally the same gym that force you to wear a certain type of gi or same gym that forces you to buy their stuff and (laughs) but uh, i like that about henzo i respect that henzo mm -hmm. gracie i think he's always been kind of cross uh, training with individuals i really respect that yeah. yeah enzo enzo has always been has always been like that he's uh and if you look at who's who he's trained with who's who's in the zoo himself personally as an mma fighter and as a jiu-jitsu practitioner but also all of his of the big names under him are are you know have traveled the world and and, and gone around and did did things so um, yeah, so that's uh, that's essentially what the the base was. I started initially, so my lineage was kind of uh, Ricardo de la Riva, and then mm-hmm. eventually in my purple, brown, and black uh, Coburina, and so those two those two were massive influences in my in my jujitsu development. But I always had a very combative driven uh, jujitsu style. So yes, I can do the X guards and all the fanciness and 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 the barambolos and those types of things. I I will generally not unless I'm playing on the mats, and that is a critical piece. I I love to have fun on the mats, and when I have fun on the mats, I will do all the things that everybody does in jujitsu, <laughs> including new new age jujitsu that's being frowned upon by the Gracie camps, for example, right? But uh, but as far as uh, as far as that's concerned, but when I'm doing something that's relatable or something that's that i anticipate will be used in the operational context i i very careful with what i pick that's great that's mm-hmm. true it's a very fascinating world because i know we talk about jujitsu in the sense of self-defense Let's see if you agree with this um oh one shout out too to henner gracie I, I did watch some of his trainings and his courses online and he gave a shout out to eddie bravo uh, so that was really cool. I admire that. Uh, I think he gave him props for the twister. I think it was mm-hmm. the twister that he used. But back to this, um, there is a difference between jiu-jitsu for belts and jiu-jitsu for self-defense, right? Well, I mean, um, I, I don't know that there actually is. I There is in mm-hmm. the sense that if you look at the JC, uh, Gracie jiu-jitsu, like the, the curriculum that, um, uh, you know, Helio had in mind or how they were running things there were very there were very few belts and then they would go and this is why you'll see hoist and others wear a blue belt when they you know and then evidently hoist gracie is almost like a fifth degree black belt or a fourth degree black belt or something so but he's not wearing his black belt he wears a blue belt so they have 
and, and other other black belts instructors under say the Gracie combatives or under the Gracie jiu-jitsu will have a blue bar on their black belt or instead of a red bar and that indicates the propensity for self-defense but any jiu-jitsu can be used for self-defense it's the individual positions and moves that are necessarily not conducive to self-defense so you so if you have the ability to sift through the weed so to speak you can take self-defense out of all of those different styles and what's important to understand is that uh, however good your jiu-jitsu is it's it it's worth nothing if you can't get to the ground and that's the biggest problem that jiu-jitsu practitioners have you know, starting on the ground, those types of things. So I'll give you an example of this. Say you're in a club where people are always starting on the ground and you always miss that critical gap. You always have that critical gap in your game, which is I don't have any takedown capabilities. Well, you can be a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but if you can't do, go to the ground, your your jiu-jitsu is negated. You're now like a blue belt, right? <laughs> if that. And so I think what's important is, is to recognize what are you doing jiu-jitsu for and what do you want to be able to use it for? And then you can make decisions, individual decisions, things that are, that I'm not expecting external forces to come in and enforce. So for example, if, if everybody starts down, but I, myself, I know I need to start standing up because I want to operationalize my jiu-jitsu or weaponize it in the context of, of of policing well then you and i as partners i can say to you hey can we start standing i really want to work on my takedowns right like and you'll find somebody like you like-minded that will want to do it and and provided that can you can do it safely sometimes we don't on account of if the class is too full but generally there's ways to do it we can go to the you know the next class or whatever the case may be but i used to do that all the time so i had an instructor's that an instructor was really good at teaching jiu jitsu but he stayed away from takedowns for example and this is years ago not my current instructor who's fantastic at takedowns but when i was starting in a jiu jitsu game um, you know there was i i hit some walls and yeah we don't we don't really practice this or whatever the case may be i knew what i needed to do as a practitioner, as a combatives person, and I did that. I made that happen. So I was able to extrapolate whatever critical piece of information I needed to be able to, you know, weaponize my jiu-jitsu in, in the context of jiu-jitsu itself. And then I would use my own sort of common sense to 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 supplement whatever was missing. If that makes any sense. No, absolutely. I know it's funny. I I think I trained Similar to what it sounds like you've been doing, I took a lot of different arts to see what I liked from each one and what was the most. I did an a la carte type of martial art training. I didn't do, I didn't want a belt. wasn't too interested in it. At first I was, and then I realized, no, I don't want to spend here all this time doing this. Um, I want to learn what's the most practical for me. I'm 51, so I'm not sitting around trying to go into the MMA or UFC or trying to do any of that. But um yeah, it was interesting to see the different components. I remember I started taking wrestling over at the school, the university, and it was uh, that's a whole different world, man. <laughs> and uh, when I started learning the takedowns, and I was rolling with some of my jujitsu pals, they dropped immediately to guard. They were just talking, "Come on!" I was like, "No, <laughs> I'm not coming down there. Why don't you let me take you down?" <laughs> and they're like, "No, nah, you know, we don't want to bother with that." So it was kind of like, "Okay, well, this is interesting." Um, so wrestling to me was fascinating in how much it's grown as well in the, in the sport of UFC. I mean, it's wrestling and calf kicks. That's like the two <laughs> secret ingredients. I have yet to see anybody train anybody for street fighting with a calf kick. I'm curious to see if that would work. 
<laughs> you know, you, you know, it's funny that you mentioned wrestling in the sense, in the context of MMA, because a lot of people give a lot of credit to Horace Gracie on bringing jujitsu to life during the MMA era. I will argue that wrestling was exactly the same. Now, wrestling was already big, but wrestling, like the majority of champs and the majority of people that do extremely well in the UFC are wrestling based, not jujitsu based. Right. And yeah. so what, what the wrestlers needed to do was to learn the things that they do that make, makes them vulnerable in the jujitsu sense and, and, and learn the jujitsu move so that they could sort of supplement their game. But if you look at Horace Gracie, even in the very beginning when he was dominating everybody, the people that were close to handed to him were wrestlers, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and Dan so, and, and, and over the years, we have seen time and time again. I mean, if you don't have solid wrestling in the MMA world right now at the level of which UFC or one are operating, you are you are in a world of hurt. I think it's like seventy percent of the champions were wrestlers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a massive, it's a massive amount, and I think it's being, you know, it, I mean, not being acting like a victim or anything. I'm not a wrestler, anyways, but I, I, I'm very aware of that. I'm keenly aware of how beneficial wrestling is, and so w one of the one of the issue with wrestling as an as an aging athlete is, <laughs> you know, the risk of injury on account of using dynamic movements, using a lot of power, using a lot of explosion. First of all, most people haven't trained in a way that's conducive to them being able to explode and do the things that wrestlers do because they do it over, you know, decades of rehearsing, of of, of repeating movements, of of doing drills. And, 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 and so if somebody comes in at 50 in, on the jiu-jitsu mats, they can definitely start doing jiu-jitsu, you know, the gentle art, and it's going to be a lot less egregious on the body, and it will be a lot easier mentally and all those other things. But if you have the opportunity to start young jiu-jitsu and wrestling, you know, I would I would prioritize wrestling myself personally from a self-defense perspective. And once you have that, and with the work ethics that that wrestling brings to the game and everything, then you can be on top of the world. Then you need a you know a purple belt in jujitsu, and you are good to go. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that because I know one of the guys I roll with when I first started, he said all you need is doc is just get a blue belt and train wrestling, you're done. That's all you really need, you know. And it's funny you mentioned that too because I'm starting to see this become much more popular here. So I'm curious about over there. Now we got a couple minutes left, but over sure. here we're seeing a lot of MMA studios, not MMA studios, jiu-jitsu studios now having five o'clock class jiu-jitsu, six o'clock class jiu-jitsu, seven o'clock wrestling. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what happened here? And um, we have kids' classes, jiu-jitsu three days a week, oh, wrestling two days a week. And I'm like, whoa. So now they're really, they're basically almost MMA, except for the striking components, not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing the same thing over there? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing the exact same thing. Mm. And 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 quite honestly, there used to be a time where martial arts was so divided and everybody was mm. protecting their empire and the empire of their sensei, so to speak, and and doing all this good stuff. And again, this this was all of this was based in total fallacy until the wheel, the wheels hit the pavement and we saw what work and what doesn't. So now you have a choice. You acknowledge that fact and you bring those things together, or you keep your head in the sand. And you continue to be obsolete 
and you know and 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 I can I mean I mean that respectfully because obviously there's other things that will draw people to martial arts it's not just their ability to weaponize their martial arts but it's also you know discipline and self-control and 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 humility and all those things that we know in the bushido way but it's important to understand why you are doing the martial arts and what is your what, what is the intent behind it because it changes things if you are looking for something that will legitimately save you, you need to make wiser choices. If you want something that has, you know, this or that or the other thing, then you have to make a different choice. But it's important. It's important to look at it objectively. And it's hard. I think a lot of people who go in and have never been in it have no idea where to go with it. They look at UFC and they think, well, maybe I should do this. And, mm-hmm. and folks, not everything in UFC will work on the street. Some mm-hmm. of those things are not going to work. You're not necessarily want to clinch. <laughs> Mm-hmm. somebody they got mm-hmm. a knife in their pocket it's going to be a bad day for you um yeah. we could be here all day talking about this too. Just have to bring <laughs> you back and talk about that probably bring sean with you too that could be good yeah anytime is, is he the, he does bgj right yeah yeah he's a purple belt yeah he's he's a good purple belt actually. and chance too right yeah chance is a purple belt also he's uh just recently got it good for them yeah um yeah, I, actually, a, actually I, I I believe, sorry, I believe Sean is a, um, he's, I believe he might be a black belt in judo as well. So he has a judo based game mm, and some, like some, too. some stand up. So he just loves to, he just loves to be well-rounded, right? As you know. Oh, yes, yes. Very comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. I like yeah. that. Judo is great. I prefer, my favorite is still kicking. I've always enjoyed kicking. So mm-hmm. I've really liked um, Muay Thai and mm-hmm. uh, actually more of the Taekwondo type kicks. I think those are kind of fun. Did you ever watch Boyka? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm a big Muay Thai fan. I was in Muay Thai for most of my teenage years. And uh, I traveled to Thailand every every three years since oh, wow. 2009 to go train for weeks at a time. But I skipped a, a few a few tours. So my last time there was in 2018. And even as a jiu-jitsu, I was a purple belt, I think, at the time. As a jiu-jitsu purple belt, I still spent a great deal of time doing Muay Thai, which is my first love, really. And uh, and uh, yeah, and Letway, eventually I started going into Letway. So I started engaging the, the headbutts and everything, which was perfect yeah. for us, wearing the helmet on the team and doing some some oh, tactical yeah. combatives. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So I love, I love, I've, I've, I've suffered a catastrophic injury in 2021 on my left leg here. And this, my left leg is likely to get amputated. So now it's going to be a go back to the, you know, to the, oh, uh, yeah. to the drawing board and, 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 and play around with getting better. And that's another tying a white belt. You know, I love that. Yeah. And no, I think Muay Thai is great for females, especially for self-defense, especially in close quarters. You can do a lot with those elbows, boy. For sure. All right, folks, again, we're talking to Seb Lavoie. You can find more about him at S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R, S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R over on Instagram. Thank you so much, Seb, for taking the time to be with us. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Hey, you know what to do. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button, and go check out S-L-A-V-C-C-M-D-R. Talk to you all next time.